Let's turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. Children and young people, it's harder to be sober, like Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 6 tells us, when you're around others your age. Even if you're with a brother or a sister or two brothers or two sisters, there's a temptation when you're in a group to make it easy to be there, no tension, to, make, to fill it with laughter and jesting and joking. If you go to school, there's just more fools. And so school can become a place where there's a lot of pressure to be jesting and joking along with everyone else. If you're sober, they're going to think you're different. They're going to call you strange. But to be called strange is something the Bible commends in 1 Peter chapter 4 and not something that we should fear or dread. May the Lord bless you. To remember what you heard this morning, and you've heard it before, but to think about these verses and to realize that Solomon the preacher, the richest, wisest king that God raised up to write this book, told you that sorrow is better than laughter, that your heart being in the house of mourning is better than the songs of fools, that going to the house of mourning is better than going to a party, that the crackling of thorns is the good describer for the laughter of fools and that you'll remember these things sorrow will make your heart better and we want to lay it to our heart and let me say those words again this is how what we ought to do about life if you want if you remember where it says in the bible that man lives to be 70 years old or if by reason of strength he lives to be 80 that is psalm 90 and verse 10 psalm 90 and verse 12 as a result of that short life, has the request, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Let's live our lives one day at a time and be as wise as we can, as measured and defined by God Himself in the Bible. I am sorry that youth is vanity and your, your hearts are full of foolishness. And I trust that your parents will drive a great deal of that out of you. And I hope that the Lord will drive the rest out. But let's choose to be sober and wise about our lives and to believe these words. That is, Solomon lifts up two things and tells us one is better than the other, that we will believe that. And therefore, because it's better, we'll put more of an emphasis on that in our lives. We will seek a reputation more than any outward adorning. We will think upon death more than upon our birth. And we will think upon sorrow and and the rebuke of the wise more than upon laughter or the songs of fools. The whole world's against us on this point, but the Bible's plain enough on it, and you should be able to see that. And we've made a commitment for ourselves and our families that the Word of God is true, and that we're going to live by this Word. And so it tells us how we should live this coming week and the rest of this day, soberly. Let's come to verse 7. At verse 7, we enter what I consider to be the third section of the chapter, And it has four various lessons of wisdom for us, like Proverbs. In the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to run into some verses that look like they could fit in the book of Proverbs. And we don't have any confusion in our minds that scribes somewhere got some Proverbs mixed up. When they were cutting and pasting on a big table, and they had all the Proverbs out with their scissors and glue... They didn't lose some and then stick them later in the book of Ecclesiastes. They're here because all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And by these wise rules, we can live profitable lives. Verse 7. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Now, you can go through quite a few exercises figuring out what the interpretation or application of this proverb is. Is it the wise man oppressing? Is it the wise man being oppressed? Is it the wise man seeing oppression of others by others? There's three options for you right there. 
So we look at this little, this little proverb, and it's written like so many of Solomon's proverbs. It has two parts. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. And then a second part, a parallelism, and a gift destroyeth the heart. To put it very simply for you so that we can save time and continue to move forward, there's something happening in the first half of verse 7, and it's happening to the wise man. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. We need to define what mad means. Does mad mean anger like we usually use the word mad? Or in the Bible, does mad usually mean insane, delusional, foolish, and stupid? We've got we to make that decision. We have the first half with something happening to the wise man. The second half simply says, and a gift destroyeth the heart. When the Bible says a gift destroyeth the heart like this, and it uses the word oppression in the same sentence, we understand that the kind of gift we're talking about is bribery. Bribery. Like the Proverbs that describe a man pulling a gift out of his bosom and passing it to another man like a judge, so that that judge will favor him in a decision, he's a verdict he's about to give that would favor the man who bought the gift. It's buying a favor in court. It's buying a judge's ruling in your behalf. That's what we understand the word gift to be here, because this gift destroyeth the heart. Good gifts, appropriate gifts, don't destroy hearts. They encourage hearts. Jacob didn't destroy the heart of Esau by sending a few gifts to him to make peace before he met his brother. You'll remember that Jacob did a good job in planning for that encounter. When I look at the first half of this verse, surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. It's a wise man being affected. Since the second half is an, and a gift destroyeth the heart, I understand the word mad to be describing delusional thinking, stupidity, or folly. And because the second half doesn't have it defined as to who's being affected, we look at the first half of the verse to see that it's the wise man being affected. So here what we, here's how we conclude what the verse is teaching. We're talking about natural wisdom and how to live a life that is not vain or vexing like the first half of the book described, to live as profitably as possible. And th- here's the rule from this verse. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 7. A wise man that uses his natural wisdom, his sagacity, his intelligence, his cunning, his understanding of things, if he uses that to oppress, he ends up being delusional and a fool. He ruins his wisdom and becomes foolish and stupid. And if that man takes a gift, a man that is otherwise known for a wise and an understanding heart, destroys the very thing that he had by taking a gift, by taking a bribe, because by receiving a bribe, it destroys the heart. Because it turns a man, instead of making a righteous judgment, he is going to favor another person's cause who bought him off. The verse begins with surely. If you have wisdom, natural wisdom that is described here, Solomon is giving a piece of advice. Do not let that Better, that greater ability than others around you or that understanding of things leads you to oppress others. Because if you use your ability to oppress others, you end up being mad. Surely, oppression maketh a wise man mad. He loses his wisdom, becomes delusional and foolish, stupid and dangerous, rather than the helpful man he could have been, and a gift destroyeth the heart. If he takes bribes, then he destroys his heart in another way. And guess what kind of men get paid bribes? Fools? No. Wise men. Because it's wise men that are usually in positions where they're making decisions for others, like being judges. And so the danger is of a wise man using that wisdom to take advantage of others or oppress people, or to let others buy him to do the same thing for them. In either case... He destroys his heart, he compromises his wisdom, and ends up a madman. Surely, oppression maketh a wise man mad. Solomon had this come true in his own family. He trained Rehoboam. You can read about him saying in the book of Proverbs, My son, my son, 
My son, my father taught me, Rehoboam. And my father said, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And, and Rehoboam should have had some wisdom. But you know, Rehoboam used that wisdom to think that he could use the position of power in Israel for the advantage of his friends and himself, and he lost ten tribes out of twelve. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad. All you have to do is read the first chapter of Rehoboam's life as king, and what do you, what do you call him? A wise man or a fool? A wise man or a madman? He was mad. He was delusional. When a group of people came to that young man, the elders of Israel, and his, his, his father's counselors told him, all they're asking for is a little relief, a little tax relief, and they'll serve you forever. And he comes back to them after a few days and tells them he's going to be harder than his father ever was. Is that wise or mad? That is mad. Because he was going to oppress that nation beyond even what his father had done in the raising of taxes. I understand Ecclesiastes 7.7 to be a warning about natural wisdom and its use. That it should be used always for the help of others and not to oppress others. And that it should never be compromised or allowed to be bought off by someone offering a gift. Because surely a wise man, if he shows that weakness of character and gives in to those two temptations... He's mad. Surely, oppression maketh a wise man mad. And a gift destroyeth the heart. To the degree that God gives a person wisdom, in your home, in your workplace, in the church of God, that ought to be used to help others and not to oppress. And you should never be allowed to be bought off or influenced by money. So many are. But a Christian never should, and a wise man never should. That is vanity and vexation of spirit to see anyone doing that where a wise man would be made, would be turned into madness by a weakness of character or a choice to compromise for money. Verse number eight. Better. Oh, I love it when he does that. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Notice in this verse, just, just notice that we have is better twice. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There's no ellipsis here like there was back up there in verse 1. Is better is recorded for us in both halves of this verse. The end of a thing is better than the beginning thereof. Anyone who's lived a few years begins to figure that out. These two clauses are related. The beginning and the end, and patient versus proud. When we read the words, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, good results trump good plans. Good results trump plans or words. Results are always better than talk. If we compare some of Solomon's Proverbs to this verse, we can understand it because he warns about the talk of the lips as not being profitable, but a man who tills his field is going to get ahead. And a, the beginning of a thing is, is not as good as the end of a thing because you never know what you're going to run into. This book is a book of vanity. The end of a thing is always better than the beginning. How many of you have ever seen a construction budget and the end result that came in under budget? It's very rare. I'm looking at one brother in here who has seen a few construction budgets in his life. And we've all had construction budgets. When have you ever had a house built or heard about a house being built that came in for less than the budget? Because the end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. The end is the results. Solomon learned that, that good results trump plans or talk. When something gets started, everyone is so excited... Everyone is talking so much. The plans may be quite grandiose, but they, they never quite end up as good as the words and the plans at the beginning. And Solomon learned that through life. And a wise man will get some profit and some comfort out of life by learning this right off the bat. Don't get as excited about the plan to do something as the result of something. Because it's better. 
There are verses that help us with this. Look at Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. Oh, the end of a thing. You say, but I don't like the end of a vacation as much as the beginning. You know, the end of a vacation hardly ever turns out as well as the beginning of it. You go into a vacation with such high expectations and hopes, and it hardly ever ends up that way. Proverbs 14 and verse 23. In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. You can talk about business plans all you want. You can talk about your career progression all you want. But what really counts is the labor that you put into something and the results that you actually accomplish. In all labor, there is profit. In all labor that produces something, there is a profitable result. And those results are better than the talk of the lips that only tends to penury. People talk and talk and talk. But it doesn't amount to anything. Labor is what produces, and labor is results, and the results trump plans and words. Look at chapter 18 and verse 17. Proverbs 18, 17. I mean, we've got to define this verse carefully because Solomon said, All the ways of a man are right in his own eyes, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, that's not where the end is better than the beginning. So we've got to look at what things the end is better than the beginning. And that's results are better than plans and talk. In 1811, the rich... Let's go to verse 17. Verse 17. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor come and searcheth him out. A man who's first in his own cause, he's got a plan, he's going to accomplish something, he's going to do something. He's first in his own cause. He is rah, rah, rah. This is going to be great and it's going to work. But his neighbor comes along later and finds out that it's not all that good of a plan. And he searches him out and discovers that it's not going to have the results that it was expected to have. Or it's not going to have the results that it promised to have. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 13. It's so much easier to plan a thing than to complete a thing. It's so much easier to talk about a thing than to actually do the thing. Here's a little wisdom from Solomon about hope. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. This is a philosophical single statement about how you should view life. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The result of a thing is better than plans for that thing. Productivity is better than talk. Because hope deferred, the waiting for this thing to get finished is hard. And you don't see that hope at the front end because you're so rah-rah about your plans. But the Lord wants you to find some meaning in life by giving you this wisdom from Solomon. His observations were, when we get done with the project, let's rejoice. Let's celebrate. I know on the job... And, and maybe some of you have experienced this before or when children have a project, and it's very limited. You know, it's going to take a couple of hours. And when somebody wants to stop in the middle and take a break, why take a break in the middle? Get the thing done and you can enjoy the break so much more because better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. What comfort is there to take a break in the middle of something when you know you've got to finish that break, get off your haunches, and go back to work? Go ahead and finish the thing, then enjoy the result of your labor. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, of that thing. Because when you begin in a vain world, you do not know what you're going to run into. You do not know what vanity or what vexation of spirit or what travail is going to keep you from it. Or is going to hinder it. Or is going to double the expense of what you thought you were going to do. So the end of a thing is better. So we should be looking at the things that we have finished and the things that we've accomplished and thanking the Lord for the mercy in finishing them rather than getting too excited about those things we don't even know what difficulties we're going to run into yet, but we're excited about them. Just a piece of wisdom from the wise man. Verse 7 was, if you're a wise man, 
Don't use oppression or don't be bought off. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And to back that up, he then says the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. A man with a patient spirit is able to keep up on that project until he reaches its conclusion and gets results. The proud in spirit likes to talk about what they're going to do. And so we have another parallelism where the two clauses go together. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Who's talking in the beginning? The proud man. Who's victorious in the end? The patient man. The man who is patient in spirit. And so we have verses like this, 28:19 in Proverbs. He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread. What kind of a man is the man who tills his bread, tills his land all the way till bread? That is a patient man. That is a very patient man who can clear a field, till a field, plant a field, weed a field, water a field, protect a field, harvest a field, and process the result of that harvest and bake the bread. That is a lot of patience. Do you know what farmers do in order to get bread? They get very poor because they have to take their money and put it into seed that goes into the ground. They invest in the ground and they don't get a return for many months. That's the patient in spirit. He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread. But he that followeth after vain persons shall have poverty enough. The one that does the talking. The one that's got a great idea and wants to tell you how you can be financially independent is going to have poverty enough. Plenty of poverty. More than he wants. Because he talks too much. He's proud about his ideas, but he doesn't have the patience to bring it to pass. The end of a thing is better than the beginning, and the patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit. Don't tell us about your child training, and don't boast even in your own heart about your child training, because the end of a thing is better than the beginning. You can talk all you want while your children are single digit. A teacher at school can handle 30 to 50 of them at a time. Why don't you tell us about it when they're 30? Come and list the righteousness and the accomplishments of your children at 30. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. You can apply this to so many parts of life. We want to get to the end. We don't want to boast at the front end. Or we're the proud in spirit. Because our spirit's telling us, well, I can do that. Anyone can do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But the patient in spirit actually accomplished something. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. All in one little sentence. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. A man patient in spirit, how does he handle a prince that's offended against him? Soft answer. A soft tongue breaketh the bone, and by long forbearing. A prince is persuaded. That's the patient in spirit. You know what it means, forbearing? To put up with a lot of offenses by someone in authority over you. The patient in spirit. What about the proud in spirit? What does the proud in spirit do when a civil ruler irritates him or offends him? What does he want to do? What? He wants to lash out and fight. He wants to defend himself. The patient in spirit is always better than the proud in spirit. You can compare it and apply it to so many different parts of life. A patient man bears offenses, but the proud must be fighting. He can't handle someone offending him. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 24 puts it this way. Proud and haughty scorner is his name who dealeth in proud wrath. We had that this past week by design. Proud is in that verse twice. Proud and haughty scorner is his name who dealeth in proud wrath, whose pride makes him get angry quickly. But a patient in spirit is able to put up with someone offending him, doesn't fight back, and it ends. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir it up. The patient in spirit. Do you know what the Bible tells us about the patience of Job enduring the afflictions that he went through? And we look at the book of Job, and we see some things that Job should have said better than he did, but we want to take God's testimony of Job. 
God knew what pressure he put in Job's life. And Job raises, God raises Job in Job, in James chapter 5 as an example of patience and how much he got in the end and the tender spirit of God blessing his patience in the end with twice as what he had in the beginning. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Speaking of a proud spirit and a patient spirit, we come to the next proverb of wisdom. Verse 9. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. It doesn't rest there very much, because fools let it out too often. And they've just got it sitting there waiting for an occasion for them to get angry. That's a fool. He's got angry inside of him like a little pile. And the least thing done to him causes it to explode and come out. But don't be hasty to be angry. So here's a rule of wisdom to to live in this vain world under the sun and to be profitable to God and to men. And it's to rule your spirit when it comes to anger. James chapter 119 tells us, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Slow down. Can you calm down and just not get angry? I'm not going to get angry over this. I'm not going to get angry today. I'll get angry tomorrow about this. It never comes. By the time you get to tomorrow, you won't even remember what the previous day you thought you were going to get angry about today. That's why the Bible says it's the glory of a man to defer his anger and to pass over a transgression. Proverbs 16.32 tells us about a man that can rule his spirit. And it's the spirit of anger, this quick reaction to an offense. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. That is such encouragement to us. There's the word better being used again with two clauses and two comparisons. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. No matter what hero you make to be the mighty man, whether it's a military person in Israel or whether it was an athletic person in Israel, the man who could be slow to anger was better than that mighty man. Because ruling our spirits is how we show wisdom. Ruling our spirits is how we fear God. Ruling our spirits is how we practice righteousness. It's not letting ourselves get angry. It's being slow to anger. Not letting other offenses bother you. Not letting people and what they do against you cause you to rise up in anger. But being slow to it. Better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh a city. To think of a man that can take a city, even if he's leading a squad, or a platoon, brigade, division, or a whole army. If he's the leader of it and he takes a city, we look at that man with great respect. But a man that can rule his spirit and not let his spirit get twisted out of shape in anger, in moodiness, but holds his spirit and rules it, that man is greater. Solomon said that. Solomon knew military commanders. Solomon had great wisdom. And when Solomon says, a man that doesn't get bent out of shape quickly, he rules his anger, he rules his spirit, and is better, we want to listen. And we want to learn that. And we want to do that. So if somebody offends you today, and I hope they do, I I hope you're ready to respond to it the way these verses are telling us. This is how to get profit out of a vain life under the sun. To rule your spirit. Before I leave this particular proverb, who was the chief of all the sets of three and the entire band of 37 mighty men that served David. What was his name? Joab. What was one brother's name who was chief of three as well? Abishai. Who was Abishai's brother and Joab's other brother? Asahel. What was Asahel known for in the Bible? He's known for his taking the gold medal at the Olympics in the 100 and 200 meters. That's what he's known for. Do you know what the Bible says about him? He could run like a deer. And he didn't mean a tractor. He could run like a deer. Asahel. I don't want to get too, I don't want to get off the point. 
These three brothers were David's nephews. David had a sister named Zeruiah. Zeruiah had three boys. These boys were tough boys. They were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And they served David. And they served him well. And you can read some things that come out of Joab's mouth that are wonderful. He trusted in the Lord. He would go into battle fearlessly. He'd tell his brother Abishai, you go ahead and take on that army. I'll take on this army. If they look like they're too much for you, I'll come over and help. If <laughs> Would you please be looking at me? And if they're too much for me, you come over and help. These are the words of the Bible. But let us play the men for our city and for our God. And let the Lord do as it seemeth him good. Good, good stuff. They stuck with David when David was being chased by King Saul. They stuck with David when David had to live in the woods. They stuck with David when David had to live among the Philistines. But one thing they could not do. They could not rule their spirits. I want to hear three more names. I want to hear the three names of three men more righteous or protected than Joab that Joab killed. That he wasn't supposed to kill. And that hurt David very much. Abner. That was King Saul's captain of the host. Who came to make peace with David and David made a covenant with him. And Joab killed him because Joab feared that he was going to lose his position. Another one. Absalom. David said, spare the young man. Joab killed him. Another one that starts with A. Amasa. Absalom's captain of his host. After Absalom was dead, Amasa came to make peace with David and to bring the rest of Judah back to him. Joab killed him. Three of them. Now, what are the words in the Bible that I'm building up this case for? Ye sons of Zeruiah, ye are too hard for me. Hardness is not always righteousness. So we want to learn to rule our spirits. Joab saw a competitor to his job, Abner. Abner was more experienced. Abner had a great reputation. He had led Israel for many, many years and when he saw David making peace with Abner, he wanted to kill him and get him out of the way. That fury that was in him. The anger that came up. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Ye sons of Zeruiah, ye are too hard for me. David said at his coronation, because Abner's blood was still wet on the ground at his coronation... He said, this day, though I am king, I am weak. It's a terrible verse. 2 Samuel 3.39. You sons of Zeruiah are too hard for me. We never want to be in that category. Let me find two other brothers. Do you know who they are? Sons of Zebedee. What's their nickname? Sons of Thunder. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem to die for us. He comes into a small village of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans perceived quickly that Jesus didn't really want to be there, that he was on his way to Jerusalem. They were offended that he didn't like their little Samaritan village. When the disciples figured out that this city didn't like Jesus and his attitude about not wanting to spend much time there, James and John came to Jesus and said, Remember Elijah? Don't you love the Bible stories, Lord? Can we be Elijah? Can we call fire down from heaven and burn up this city of the Samaritans? Now, see, they're appealing to the Bible. They're appealing to a great man in the Bible. What did Jesus say to them? Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save. They were offended by the reaction of that Samaritan village to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is another lesson where Jesus corrected the spirit on the part of two of his own apostles. So even within the apostles, there was resting in some bosoms, some anger. Not that they were fools all the time, but there was some anger there that they could not take that offense on the part of the Samaritans. And Jesus taught us another wonderful lesson. Paul told Timothy about men who contradict the truth. The servant of the Lord must not 
strive. We shouldn't get angry when we're presenting the truth. If God doesn't open their eyes, or if God doesn't give them repentance to acknowledging the truth, we're not going to convince them of it. The Lord has to do it. Even a great ministerial understudy like Timothy was told, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. That is very contrary to the old Apache evangelism that we thought God had called us to exercise. Jehu had zeal in one place against the enemy and leaders and Baal worshippers of Israel and Judah. But Jehu's zeal is not what we should be showing at all times. You know, King Saul wanted to be like Jehu once. What did King Saul do to be like Jehu? He killed the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were that city of Gibeah that came to Joshua, pretended they had come a long distance. Do you remember? They pretended they came a long distance, and Joshua and the elders of Israel made a covenant with them and let them live among them, even though God had said to wipe out all the Canaanites. When Saul got in trouble in his life, he decided he would show the Lord his zeal, and he went and killed some Gibeonites. Terribly wrong. And his family tree was cut off for that. Terrible use of anger. And it's something that we want to avoid with all our might. Verse 9 was, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. If you get angry without a very righteous cause, as defined by God, not by you, we would never Ask a man or trust his judgment who is angry that he is angry for a righteous cause. Would you even ask him? If you would ask him, you're a fool. If you would ask an angry man, can you justify your anger? You're a fool. Because a man that's angry has no reason. He's a fool. He's given himself over to folly. Unless there is a Bible-defined specific reason to be angry. You know, there's a time to be angry like Moses coming down on Mount Sinai and finding the nation of Israel worshiping naked around a golden calf when he had just been gone for 40 days. That's not even six weeks. And they had already gone back to worshiping a golden calf. Yes, he was angry. Yes, he threw the tablets down and broke them and God replaced them. And yes, he took that golden calf and ground it up in powder and put it in the water and let Israel drink gold Kool-Aid. There's a time to be angry, but when was the last time you had an occasion of finding your family in the backyard worshiping naked around a golden calf? Verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Your question is not a good question. Your question is a scornful questioning of God's providence. And here is a one-sentence rule against it. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. If you want to examine yourself and say, Self, what were you doing better in the past than you're doing now? That's self-examination. Self, because the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 2, Remember from whence thou art fallen. If you're doing self-examination about how you've declined in your spiritual zeal or your spiritual habits or your godliness, that is a good thing because we're told to do that. But this is asking a question not of yourself, but of those things outside of your control that you're going to blame for the circumstances of your life. This is blaming God by asking a question that it was easier. You help them more. Those times were better. There wasn't as much evil. There wasn't as much temptation. You were more merciful. What is the cause that the former days were better than these? Because God has been fair in His providence in all generations. And it is not for us to inquire in such a matter. That is not a wise inquiry. That is a foolish inquiry. That's a scornful inquiry. He's the potter and we are the clay. He can do with us as He will. And His providence is always fair. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. 
common in this generation and common in the previous generation and common all the way back to Adam. There's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. And so to ask that question, we should not be asking questions about why was it better in the past? Why isn't the Lord doing for us what He used to do? Now, if we were to ask that based on our sinfulness and examining ourselves, that's considering in the day of adversity. But if we start asking a question, what is the cause the former days were better than these? We understand from this verse that this is, this is trying to inquire into the secret things of God that are none of our business. Thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. If you want to humble yourself and ask God to show you your secret sins and to keep you from your presumptuous sins, that's what David did. Psalm 19, verses 11 to the end of the chapter. But we don't question what God has done in His sovereign providence. Why did God treat them so much better than He treated us? Why isn't God doing for us what He did for them when in a blaming way? Not one of trying to find out what's wrong with us. That's the question we should be asking. Lord, what is wrong with me? Why am I not loving you and serving you like I once did? Show me my error. Not asking God or questioning Him in a scornful way that He has changed things in an evil way. That He's not being fair or just in His distribution of providence. Here's a, this is a complaint about God's providence and why you cannot bear the present stress or you want to blame God for not being as fair with this generation or with your family or with you as he was with others in times past. There is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. God's providence is fair to all generations. The problems that men have in life is not because of God, as the last verse of this chapter is going to tell us. It's because men have made many inventions. God hath made man upright. We are the ones that have sought out many inventions that have overthrown his blessing. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. The revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. Verse 10 is a warning about not asking, questioning, scorning the providence of God in the affairs of nations or men. Because God puts up one king and puts down a king, and he answers to no one. He reaches forth his right hand, and none can say, What doest thou? And when you look at events taking place in our nation or other nations, and for you to start to question against them, not questioning to learn from them as to how we should examine ourselves or change our lives, then you are not inquiring wisely about this matter. Because God doesn't have to give an answer for any of the things He does. He just does it. And it is not our play. We can't restrain Him, and we can't question Him. We cannot say, what doest thou? It would be so much better for us to ask, Lord, why am I not better in light of all that you've done in my life? That is such a different question than asking, why isn't it as good as it was in the old days? Why are we having it so hard? Well, how do you know that they didn't have it so hard? You didn't live back then. Go back then and find out that there's nothing new under the sun. Right. And that every temptation they had is common to the temptations you have. Right. Is pornography, let me tell you something that I've talked to a couple of men about in recent days. Is pornography a temptation in our generation? It's a horrible temptation in our generation. Pornography is a horrible temptation, and it's produced by a media that gives us a whole lot of different means in order to be able to see it and makes it a whole lot more accessible than ever before. However, other generations have had to face the same temptation, and it's wrong in both cases. Jonathan Edwards lost his church by a vote of 220 because he condemned and accused some young men in that church that had got their hands on a midwife's manual. And those, those boys were children of prominent church members. And one thing led to another, and though it was a long, drawn-out case, Jonathan Edwards preached that such conduct doesn't belong at the Lord's table. He was in trouble because of their theology and their church practice. 
You baptized babies and babies became church members, whether they had an experience of grace or feared God or loved Jesus Christ at all. He was voted out of his own church, 220, for taking a stand way back then when you would think there wasn't such a thing. But even back then there was. It is worse in our day, by far. All you have to have is two eyes and a thinking mind to be able to realize that. But don't inquire about the th- why, isn't, why is God not being as fair with us? Why did God not treat them the way he's treating us? Why was it better back then? If it was better now, I'd serve him more. Thou art not inquiring wisely about this matter. If you inquire, Lord, why don't I love you as much as I used to? Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Like David said in Psalm 51. And, and let me remind you again from Revelation 2.5. We are to remember from whence we are fallen. We are to repent and we are to do the first works. That's godly repentance. That's a godly inquiry to remember from where you have fallen. But to blame God or to question God, totally wrong. Israel complained that it was their fathers that had eaten sour grapes that had set their teeth on edge. They were blaming the fact that they were having trouble in their generation because it was their fathers. Totally missing the fact that God judged every generation and they ought to be repenting for their sins, not questioning God's disposal of providence we don't know what's going to happen in our nation politically we don't know what's going to happen in our nation economically but at no point are we going to call the high king of heaven as has already been mentioned into question about it we're going to humble ourselves before him and ask what we can do in the way of prayer and righteousness to preserve our nation that is inquiring wisely in the matter what can we do O lord to preserve our peace and prosperity. There's a lesson in verses 11 and 12 that wisdom and money are great defenses, but that wisdom is far superior to money. A man that has wisdom and an inheritance, blessed man. He can do a lot of good. But wisdom excels the advantage of having money. You won't have any money if you, don't, if you don't work hard, and if you don't work smart, and if you don't save, you won't have any. It's a defense. But wisdom is far superior to it, as the last part of verse 12 says. In verses 13 through 15 is a lesson about the providence of God. When God makes something crooked, you aren't going to straighten it out. When God brings judgment upon a nation, you're not going to end it. When God brings prosperity, no one else is going to be able to end it. And so we are to submit ourselves to the providence of God. God has set at prosperity and adversity, both of them, back and forth in our lives until he reduces all men that they must be totally dependent upon him because they live and exist and prosper at his mercy. As verse 14 describes to us, God hath set the one over against the other. Verses 16 through 18 And I'm going to come back to these. I just want to tell you, in case you were wondering, through verse 18. Verses 16 through 18 are describing a man-made righteousness. When it says, be not righteous overmuch, it is impossible to be too righteous when it's properly defined. That should be obvious to you. True righteousness, you can't have too much of it. But there, there was a denomination that was the most conservative denomination in the Bible that had a man-made righteousness that was way overdone. And it was wrong. And it's the Pharisees. And Jesus dealt with it his whole ministry. They would corrupt all sorts of things in their zeal for righteousness. Jesus said, stop judging by appearance and judge righteous judgment. They would judge him for healing on the Sabbath day. They would judge his apostles for eating on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, haven't you ever read about David and the showbread? Don't you know that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? Don't you know that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? That's the correction of excessive righteousness and wisdom of trying to reason out of the word of God. They were overmuch wise in a corrupt way of trying to get themselves out of God's righteousness. They would say anything that they owed their parents was Corbin, a gift to God. And would deliver themselves from honoring their parents. Because there is an extreme nature in all men to either be too righteous by corrupting righteousness and making man-made standards of it. Or there are men that are overmuch wicked 
which is verse 17. But do you know who comes forth of them all? The man who goes down the center of the road on the crown of the pavement. And what is he described as? The man who fears the Lord. The man who fears the Lord comes forth of them all, as verse 18 describes. And do you know what Solomon says by the time he gets to this point? And this is one of his intermediate conclusions. He says, it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. Get a hold of this, and then don't let go of it. Learn this, and never forget it. He that feareth God shall come forth of them all. You can be over-righteous and not please God. You can be over-wicked, and God will judge you early. Two extremes. One of being too conservative and one of being too liberal. And the Lord wants us to go right down the middle following His Word. The Pharisees put burdens upon men's backs and didn't lift them with a single finger. They put too many burdens on men's backs so that Jesus would say, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's lighter than the Pharisees. It's looser than the Pharisees. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. That is the religion of Christianity. And it's the man that fears the Lord, which means he keeps God's commandments and lets God define what real righteousness and what real wisdom is, not by any human standards, either conservative or liberal. May the Lord bless us to go out of this place and choose a good name, more than precious ointment. Let us go out of this place and believe and put our hearts in the house of mourning where the wise can rebuke us and where sorrow can make our hearts better than to go to the house of feasting for the songs of fools. Let's go out of this place never using our wisdom to take advantage of anyone but always to help others and never to be bought off in the execution of righteousness. To believe that the end of a thing, real results, trump, talk, and plans. Never to be hasty in our spirits to be angry, but to be patient. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools, and not to question God's sovereignty, not to question His disposal of events. We don't know why God does some of the things He does, because they're God's. And as we sang earlier this morning, He is His own interpreter. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. If you'll fall at the feet of the living God and submit to Him in humility for whatever His choices and providence are, He will bless you and lead you, comfort you and provide for you. And this is what Solomon is teaching us in these 18 verses of chapter 7, that though we live in a, a vain life under the sun, there can be profit if we live it the way he tells us how to live it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.